Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast, special edition Q&A to break up this series that we've been doing. Just wanted to get you guys input, you know, see what you want to ask about. And uh, yeah, just a little bit of a change of tune. But before we get there, Patty, how are you? I am absolutely splendid, Gary. Although today is actually fucking roasting hot. And normally I'm not one to complain about the heat. I, I like the heat. However, this is October. What the fuck? It's like 16 or 17 degrees today. It's like warm and wet here. It's yeah. like that ugly, sticky yeah. business, you know? Muggy, humid type thing. You know, it's not great, you know? But look, we won't complain because it could be freezing cold. Although, actually, I kind of like the cold, so that's that's not an issue. Yeah. Um, but anyway, look, we're not here to talk about the weather. How are you, Gary? You were in, I was going to say college today, but you weren't in college today. You were in... Uh, the hospital. I was going to say in the hospital? On hospital? On hospital. Hospital, yeah. Anyway, you were in the hospital. What's the story with that? How has uh, being in the hospital been? Enjoyable? Yeah, very good. I'm on anesthetics this week. Not necessarily my favorite, to be honest. I do like ICU, but other than that, not really my favorite specialty. Maybe I'll eat those words in years to come and I want to be an anesthetist. But uh, for now, <clears throat> ah, not too interesting. Have surgery next week, which is cooler because cutting things with knives, you know. It's good vibes. Um, so yeah, looking forward to that. Fantastic. Anyway, let's get into this Q&A. You asked people on your Instagram for a few questions. I've actually had a few questions just banked up from like you know random people asking questions. Um, so I have a few questions. You have a few questions. We're going to try to keep these more related to the training side of things because obviously we have been doing this training series. Um, but there are obviously a few questions in there that are just, you know, random or tangential to all the stuff that we have been discussing so gary away with you let's go what's the first question yeah so first question is from jenny who asks what advice would you give to a newly qualified personal trainer who would like to start online coaching too so this is obviously something that is increasingly on the radar of many personal trainers particularly during uh, the coronavirus pandemic. I imagine many trainers had to rethink their businesses and start to think, right, how am I going to move things online? It definitely makes a lot of sense for damage control in the future too, because like there's a non-zero probability that there could be either further lockdowns or other novel viruses that could lead to um, pandemics in the future. And therefore you can see that there's some sort of fragility with only having one element to your business. So it would make sense from a business perspective to at least have some sort of online element. Now, with that said, when you're early on in your personal training career, um, this definitely depends on your background pre-personal training. But assuming a blank canvas, I do think it's really important that people do get experience on the gym floor. That experience isn't as important for everyone because some people maybe they might have previously worked in uh, physiotherapy or as like a fitness class instructor or yoga instructor where they're more used to working with people. Um, but for many people, I think the soft skills of, you know, communication and queuing clients, being able to spot um, maybe technical errors that need correction, etc., all those types of things are gained through uh, experience on the gym floor. And while you can replicate that to some degree through video analysis online, et cetera, it's uh, definitely good to get that experience. So that would be my first piece of advice, I guess, is don't rush into it too soon and recognize that there is a lot of value to working on the gym floor first. But it's definitely valuable to work online. And I think that it's increasingly 
possible to do that really well. It's very easy to put together high quality documentation that provides your clients with education using different software, like whether it's just Microsoft Word or you want to use something more elaborate like Canva, Lucidchart, et cetera. All these things are out there to make the delivery of information really easy and really well presented. And you've also got so much software that could be used and just basic social communication mechanisms like WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook groups, email, et cetera, that can allow you to communicate with your client through voice messages, through video. You've got Zoom where you can do your consultations. You've got you know, WhatsApp where you can analyze training videos, Google Drive where they can upload their training videos, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm getting at is that online coaching is no longer maybe what it was 10 years ago where email was basically all people might have thought about, you know, you get your macros and, you know, you get your program and that's kind of it. You check in with your coach once a week. There's so many other options to improve the quality of your service. And I think getting good at that is is something that is uh, very valuable. So I guess my point there is it's worth doing, but I haven't necessarily told you exactly what advice I would give you there yet. But before I move on, have you got anything to interject there with Patty? Well, just especially on just what you just said there, just what you just, just what you said there. Um, I would just get a coach, right? Because this is probably going to like fast forward all of the things that you just said there in terms of like you are selling a product. If you've never got coaching, you are selling a product that you have never consumed. You know, like you, you don't know what that product is. You don't even know how good it is, how bad it is, because you have absolutely no frame of reference because you have never bought that product yourself, you know? So I would just go out and get coaching from someone else in terms of online coaching that you're like, I actually respect this person. I actually think they'd be able to help me towards my goals. And again, they might not be your client's goals, but at least you can see how someone hopefully successful runs their business what they do how do they do a, an onboarding process how do they do like what forms do they use what software do they use etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it literally just jumps you light years ahead of the pack because you can see what you like and what you don't like and then you can kind of make your own process and your own service based off that and what you have you know you're, you're thinking overall but i do also agree with you in terms of thinking like get some gym floor experience first and foremost it's actually the most valuable thing you can get in a world where people just jump online straight away um, and you do see people like you don't you very rarely see people that are successful that only ever did online you know whereas people who did in person and then moved online they seem to have more success and success leaves clues so let's actually listen to those clues yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in terms of advice then, yeah, I would agree. Get a coach. Not only will you learn from someone who's been in the game as to like what a good service looks like, but you'll also learn maybe what doesn't work for you because you might identify, even if you work with, you know, triage, there might, you might work with us and see that I actually don't like the way they do that. I feel like that for my clients, I'd like to do things this way, you know, that's something that's really valuable too. And even just speaking to other trainers, asking them how, how they run their service, obviously be respectful of people's time. One of the things that a lot of trainers be more than happy to do for you is just you book an hour of their time to do a consultation, get on Zoom with someone who you feel runs a good online coaching service, and then ask them to just walk you through um, how they run their service. And you'll learn things, take what you feel is appropriate, and then add your own spin on it, you know? 
there's not that much that's original really you know ultimately the online coaching process is pretty simple in theory in that you're providing someone with a program you're providing them with nutrition guidelines you're implementing methods of accountability um, and support and you're making changes from there as you go forward the nuances of that are how you communicate well the how you monitor your programs when you make changes how you analyze the person's videos etc and they're the things that you learn along the way but to start off i think if you can book a consultation with a good trainer who's run online coaching successfully for a number of years i think that's a pretty pretty good way of getting started 100 and i'd just like to finally say on that that it is actually so much easier to make more money in person than it is to make money online right and just let that sink in because everyone always thinks that going online is the way to six figures seven figures you know so scalable blah 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 but you are going from a local you know maybe there's 100 200 500 i don't know how many people around your area right you're going from that environment to billions everyone's online right so you are competing against just the local people versus competing against the billions of people that are online now, you know? So it's actually easier in person to build a following, to build a name for yourself. Like all you have to do is get one or two clients and then get word of mouth from there, you know? You also, especially in this day and age where people still have not the the wherewithal to actually just get like basic online presence things sorted. Like you can have like a, a Google, like kind of storefront, like a Google and like address and everything where it's like someone just Googles, you know, personal training in whatever area you're in, like your name should be at the top there, you know, like stuff like that. Like there's so many very basic things that you can do that are technically online that help with an in-person business that, you know, most personal trainers just simply do not do. Right. So don't just, what I'm saying is don't just jump online. If you think, that's the way to riches or whatever. And um, it might suit your lifestyle. It might whatever. Um, but in-person is definitely an easier business model to make more money in a faster way once you've kind of built that uh, name for yourself. Now, obviously, the issue with that is you are kind of confined to the local area and however many people are in your local area like you might be in an area where there's 100 people like you're not going to make a lot of money there and you might be in a lower socioeconomic status area and like you might want to charge 70 euro per hour for your service or whatever but the people that are around you are only willing to spend 20 euro per hour for that service you know so you are a little bit at the whim of your location there and then obviously it makes more sense to you know push the online stuff um but for most people uh, in this day and age in the kind of developed world will say, you know, it's probably easier just to, you know, do stuff locally. Yeah. And I think just one final thing there is like, you made the point that it's pro- it's easier to make more money. And I think people actually often think it's the other way around, but that's just because of total sampling bias where all you see when you go online and you follow different trainers with online coaching businesses are the ones who are super successful. Okay. So there's an elephant or there's an element of you just looking at all those people who have all these clients and tens of thousands of followers, but what you're not actually looking at are all the trainers that are like, yeah, I have three online clients, you know, I have five some months, but I'm really struggling to get traction and I don't seem to be getting more followers and so on and so on. And sometimes that's just the result of unfortunate circumstances where you might have just gotten into the market at a very late stage 
and you actually don't have much that's unique, you know? Um, and, and that doesn't mean that you're not better than some of those other trainers, but they got there quicker. And sometimes it can be difficult to make up that ground. So there's definitely like a larger spread of like the, from the highly successful down to those that are really struggling in the online world. Whereas in the real world, like one-to-one personal training context, if you're working in an established facility, it's probably a bit more like reliable. So if you're looking for like a reliable source of income, that's going to gradually grow over time and your reputation is going to ma- maintain or be more solid over time. I think the one-to-one in person is, is a really good base to build. So um, especially if you're working in a gym or something, like literally mm-hmm. all you have to do is get good results and talk to people, you know, yeah. like people are walking in the door anyway. So it's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel effectively because they're, they're coming to you. Right. Whereas online, and you know what they want because exactly. they're in the gym. <laughs> they're literally in the gym. Like they're, they're coming to you. Whereas online, people are following you for you know various reasons, being like, oh, yeah, I like, I like his attitude towards this. You know, like I doubt all 15,000 followers or however many followers you have, Gary, like are like, oh, yeah, I, I only follow Gary for the fact that he's a personal trainer. Like definitely yeah. not, you know? Um, so it, it, it is a bit harder in the online game. But anyway, let's get to the next question. Yeah. Next question is from Tony is, Breath holding during strength training, is it good or bad? So what I will say here is that a lot of people will claim that breath holding is bad for various reasons. For example, it is going to acutely increase your blood pressure. It can increase uh, intracerebral pressure. Um, and basically, it's just putting a lot of pressure on the system. But that's effectively the goal. Like you're trying to develop rigidity in your body to be able to move as much weight as possible. Um Now, with that said, there's some cases where maybe it mightn't be the best idea. So, for example, if someone gets um, exertion or pressure headaches or someone has uh, had recent uh, brain surgery or a history of recurring aneurysms in their brain or in their aorta or something along those lines, maybe you wouldn't consider um, breath holding to be something. Or or something like a hernia that they consist of, you know. Yeah, if they've got a hernia that's clearly aggravated by breath holding or they had, you know, surgical repair of a hernia and the scars healing, etc. But they're all kind of medical or surgical complications or, or considerations that you'd probably be speaking to your doctor about. Um, and to be honest, I don't think otherwise it's, it's something that's going to be harmful because ultimately, yes, you do get the spike in blood pressure, very large spikes in blood pressure, in fact, when you're using a Valsalva maneuver, um, or just breath holding in general, but it's over a very short duration. Uh, generally you're talking three to six seconds of breath holding, and then you're taking a breath again. And we already know that strength training, even the, even in the presence of heavier loads and breath holding leads to reductions in blood pressure on average. So while you do get the acute spike, it's not necessarily, um, concordant with a a chronic uh, increase in blood pressure. So I think they'd be the major concerns that people would typically have. Um, the only other thing that I would say is that some people can get like um, a kind of uh, like a, a source of fainting, basically, if they if they hold their breath, like a vagal response, vasovagal response, where when you hold your breath and you're suddenly uh, find yourself getting lightheaded after a set and then you fall, you know, and collapse, like obviously that's not great. But, on like deadlift videos all the time yeah deadlift oh. videos <laughs> but typically that's like one rep max like straining for 10 seconds on the way up <laughs> like for most people that's not going to be an issue if it's something that you struggle with on a recurring basis 
um, then I would, you know, stay a bit further from failure would be my first port of call. And if it's genuinely that much of an issue, one, see a doctor and two, consider um, using safer exercises, potentially. There's some medical conditions that can lead to those types of responses too. But again, they're medical conditions and the vast majority of people breath holding in my eyes is good because it supports your strength. Yeah, well, I would say almost the exact opposite, not the opposite to you in terms of the opposite to the question. I'd be like, is not holding your breath unsafe? You know, yeah. like if someone was coming to me and they're like, oh, I'm going to squat and I'm not doing any kind of Valsalva maneuver, not like, you know, filling your stomach with air, not holding your breath, not holding that tight. I'd be like, that's kind of unsafe. Like you're putting yourself in a position where like your spine isn't really supported. Like it's supposed to yeah. be, you're supposed to strain, if you will, to keep that support, that intra-abdominal pressure. So in my mind, I'd be like, it's kind of unsafe not to do it, right? Mm -hmm. But there is a concern here, like you've noted a few of them, but also if we're doing like continuous reps, like there's a difference between like holding your breath for one rep, breathing out on the way up or whatever at the top and resetting, bracing again, maybe even two, three reps. But if you're holding your breath for a rep or a set of 15, like that's a completely different thing. And you're probably limiting your ability to train by virtue of the fact that you're literally yeah. like getting hypoxia because you're just holding your breath for 15 reps or whatever it is, you know? So there has to be some breathing going on, whether it's you reset after every single rep, whether it's you reset after two, three reps, whatever. And um, it, it really depends on, on the exercise, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, I would probably be very pro uh, holding your breath at certain stages, but I'm also very pro breathing. So it's about finding that balance in terms of you want to be able to continue doing your set and not just be lightheaded after rep five, because you've basically been holding your breath since the start of rep one, you know? So you do need to also breathe, which then comes back to the fact that it's like, okay, you want to hold your breath at just specific times to do that kind of Valsalva maneuver. And then in between that, you are actually still breathing. So are you really holding your breath? Yeah, transiently for a couple of milliseconds, basically. But overall, you know, it's not actually that long. Obviously, if you're doing longer reps, like you're doing a five-second eccentric pause, whatever, like you could be holding your, your breath for a significant amount of time. But the way most people do reps, it's over in like less than a second, you know? So you're not really holding your breath all that long. Like I've had exhalations and like the pause, the turnaround time between the time you exhale and the time you inhale, I've had longer of those than the way most people hold their breath during the set. So. Yeah. And then just one final thing on that as well is that um, often this isn't actually a conscious thing. Like if you look at the research on weight training um, and Valsalva maneuvers, most people actually do this subconsciously. So anytime they're straining, anytime they're like, let's say, even if people are like lifting a fridge or something, you see people and hear people going, you know, that typical sound that people make. And that's that's them performing a Valsalva without them realizing it. So they're breath holding slash bracing, even if they're not doing the whole, you know, elaborate <gasps> that, that power lifters will do. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's fairly involuntary. Uh, it makes sense. It makes you stronger. It allows you to lift more weight. It's potentially um, protective uh, against injury or at least very poor and inefficient use of your muscles. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a yes from me outside of medical or surgical, um, contraindications. 100%. Next question. Next question. Um, any strength conditioning, continuous professional development recommendations for a physio aside from the coach's corner. Um, 
I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, because I know that some places will have strength conditioning certifications for physios in particular. But honestly, if I was a physio and I felt like I didn't have good knowledge of exercise prescription, um, I would just do like a, a strength conditioning course that's across like multiple weekends or every second weekend or something along those lines that's not specific to physio that's just for trainers or wannabe trainers or whatever and then use that knowledge in application to your specific patient population i think that's probably the best way of going about things in terms of like specific courses i i'm not sure i can't necessarily endorse any in particular um but that's generally what i would be looking for you know don't it doesn't need to be physio specific for you to be able to apply it especially if you train yourself because i think training yourself and especially if you're following us and you you know you've come across the coach's corner should be in a good place to be able to put all those pieces of knowledge together so i don't have much much else to say about that really yeah the only other thing i have to add to that is are you looking for a piece of paper on the wall or are you looking for knowledge yeah. if you're looking for a piece of paper on the wall there you're obviously going to have to go somewhere that gives you a search or gives you whatever right and if that's the case you probably want to do the cscs you know and that's probably yeah, that's the, most, actually, yeah. the most well recognized one and they'll give you a search right i'm not saying it's the best one you know i'm not saying it's the worst one either but it's probably the most well recognized in terms of like you'll know, we'll call it strength mm-hmm. and conditioning right and you also have to have a degree to get it so you know pretty well recognized etc right but if all you're looking for is actual like information practical information that you can actually use you know i would say probably mentorships are probably better than a a course itself like i'm presuming you have some sort of baseline knowledge it's not like you're coming to this going oh i don't i fucking i don't even know i've never trained before in my life i don't know anything i'm presuming you have some sort of baseline knowledge a competent mentor in terms of someone that you can just go and bounce ideas off of and kind of bring you along like that can go a long long way because rather than doing a you know 12 week course two year course whatever it is that teaches you like half the stuff you already know and it's like you only learn a little bit here and there like with a mentorship you can basically just go straight in and go right what don't i know what do i need to work on oh you've exposed these little flaws in my thinking blah 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 we can actually dive deep on the specifics of you know the knowledge gaps that you have rather than just going here's our curriculum you know so i would say mentorships are better now, unfortunately we don't do mentorships so uh i don't know who you go to for that but i do know that there are other coaches out there other businesses etc that do do mentorships so that would be my kind of go-to if i was in that position and yeah i would stand by the cscs as well i kind of forgot that that was um an option because pe- <laughs> because people all because i i just stopped recommending those types of things or thinking about those types of things because it requires a degree but obviously if you have a fi- if you're a physio you have a degree so it will be good because it's, it's definitely something that will probably probably be more recognized recognized as a physio as well um especially if you're in that kind of snc area that like cscs would stand out a bit more whereas if you're a personal trainer like trainers don't really care about that stuff you know but strength conditioning yeah cscs seems like a good call there so yeah give that a shot or get a mentorship um but they'd be some of the options now zma this is a supplement i haven't heard about for years it used to be really like in trend but not so much anymore uh the question is any cons any downsides um been having wild dreams and wild is in capitals <laughs> and this is something that like a lot of people do report anecdotally um potentially 
the this could be just a bit of a placebo effect where you read about it uh, very frequently from other people and maybe it's that um but it is something that seems to be observed fairly um frequently now there's not actually much research if any on zma specifically um the formulations themselves together effectively what you're looking at is zinc magnesium and vitamin b6 most of the supplements um that you'll take um from the standard brands that you'd be buying tend to basically underdose all three of those um and certainly underdose magnesium and zinc maybe you get a bit more b6 sometimes because they're generally a bit cheaper but generally you're not getting massive quantities now i'm not sure if there's any particular synergy that would explain wild dreams or anything i'm not sure there's uh much of an indication for the supplement in the first place, to be honest, like unless you've got an identified zinc or magnesium deficiency, like magnesium insufficiency is fairly common, um, especially if you don't eat a lot of like fruits and vegetables or plant foods generally, like, so there could be some benefit there. But uh, I guess the cons, obviously your wallet, but I don't, don't think there's any major side effects. None of those supplements would really be carry significant risks. And I'm not sure if there's anything to the dreams, Patty, what do you think? Uh, well, all of those, like zinc, magnesium, and B6, they all do have a role to play in, we'll call it tryptophan to melatonin synthesis. Yeah. So we could fucking mechanistically hypothesize here and be like, oh, well, the zinc is actually helping with enzyme function. You know, mm-hmm. the magnesium is also helping with enzyme function, and the B6, again, helping with enzyme function. So you're actually getting more, uh, now, I don't know, fucking melatonin secretion and that's, you know, causing dreams or you're maybe getting more tryptophan across the blood brain barrier, whatever. We could make some fucking mechanistic hypothesis here, you know? And the thing about it is it definitely is a thing that people get, you know, fucking wild dreams. Um, but they do seem to just stop after a while, you know, and that could, maybe we could say, okay, well, that's because you fixed, uh, deficiency you know you no longer have that deficiency maybe it was a b6 or maybe magnesium whatever the fuck right and now you don't have that anymore so those dreams aren't as vivid because you just have that as a constant background or whatever right um that's a you know plausible argument you could make i don't think i've seen any research on that so you know we could hypothesize that however like what's the what's the reason behind buying zma in the first place like it's very poor unless obviously you are deficient especially in zinc very poor at actually increasing testosterone, which is presumably why most people take it because you're getting an insignificant amount of magnesium that could potentially help with sleep again, you know, true enzyme function and ATP, et cetera. Um, so the only real reason, and especially it used to be marketed, especially in the nineties for like testosterone, like all oh, testosterone boosting, you're going to get fucking wild boners, et cetera. Like, it's just it's just poorly researched uh, or poorly uh, supported by the research so it's a no from me um i just wouldn't even be taking it like so in terms of what are the cons i'd be asked a different question it's like what are the fucking pros like there's yeah, yeah. very very few pros to this um especially consi- considering like you said Gary, they're generally just underdosed like you're probably getting the exact same amount of zinc magnesium b6 from just a fucking generic multivitamin so take the multivitamin and get all of those things along with all the other things, you know, that you're probably paying the exact same price for anyway, you know? And that would be my uh, thought process anyway. Just, I don't like, I literally have never recommended ZMA as a supplement for someone to take. Yeah. So underdosed, probably overpriced relative to that and very little, if any benefits 
and would probably be cheaper and more effective if you're genuinely interested in those three ingredients to get them separately, you know, uh, get a, a better source of magnesium. Like if you look at those supplements very often, it might be like hundred milligrams of magnesium oxide or something like that, which is just crap, you know, um, instead go to like iHerb or something and buy a 180 caps of uh magnesium and that's going to be a lot powder or something right yeah i actually have powder below and it works pretty well so yeah you know there's options anyway next question um we can both answer this and it's pretty much the exact same answer so how long did it take for you to get your blue belt well this is not actually technically the exact same answer because right technically speaking I did like three years of MMA, right? So there's jujitsu in that. So do we count that as well? Because if we do, five years it took me to get my blue belt, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but other than that, it took two years. And obviously there's a pandemic in there. I was also on holidays, we could yeah. call holidays for three months in that time in America. Now I did do jujitsu in there when I was in America, but you know, it's not in the same club. You're coach doesn't see it and he's just like right yeah, well, if i didn't yeah, see it yeah. it's not really fucking counting towards it, what i'm i'm doing but two years anyway yeah yeah pretty much pretty much the same like yourself kind of changing back and forth i had i had six months i had six months of consistent training in killarney okay so that was a different gym and then i trained for about three months in bjj cork then stopped for like a month or something then started again then the pandemic came then we basically weren't training, did a bit of training in my backyard, but again, doesn't really count for anything when you're not in the club. So if you actually add it up, it's probably like, I don't know, a year, year and a half training in the gym consistently. Um, and just, yeah, I just say two years, you know, doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's just training. So mm-hmm. there you go. That's the blue belt. Also, and this is, you know, it annoys people, but the belt literally means nothing. Like nope. it absolutely means not a single thing, you know, like literally I used to roll with like purple belts, tap them sometimes you know as a white belt you know so not to say that i'm fucking fantastic or anything but i'm just saying like the belt literally doesn't mean anything at all you know it's a nice little marker of progress you know like people have these milestones in the gym for example they're like oh i remember the first time i squatted one plate or i remember the first time i squatted two plates you know it's just like yeah they're nice little markers along the way but ultimately like there's no weight classes in the jungle there's no belts in the jungle nobody gives a fuck you know um so yeah that's just my two cents also i come from a sport like previously i boxed for like 10 years where there's no belts unless you're obviously fucking king of the world top you know yep absolutely i just view it all like like education for me it's just like study so leave the ego outside the door focus on developing put yourself in bad positions tap without letting it hurt your feelings and yeah that's my philosophy so there you go anyway do you oh absolutely you touch my you touch my left foot i'm fucking tapping as soon as you look at it (laughs) uh right owen asks is there any situations where a slow concentric is preferred over a fast concentric uh yes and i think we would have touched on these uh in some of the last few episodes but there's a number of of examples so any machine or exercise in which it's very easy to launch a weight I would favor a slower concentric. An example of that would be if you're using a cable machine, um, it can be a lot more complicated than this, but generally you can have a one-to-one or a two-to-one cable setup. So this means that the cable's either attached directly to the weight stack or it's attached to um, like a redirect, which is like a little circular wheel uh, that then lifts up the weight stack. 
So this actually changes how much um, momentum you're going to generate when you move the weight. And you'll find this, that with those one-to-one weight stacks, what happens sometimes, like let's say you're doing a tricep pushdown, you know, you launch the weight down and you feel like for the bottom half of the rep, you're doing basically nothing because all you did was launch it from the beginning. Whereas the two-to-one weight stack, it's actually more difficult to develop that momentum because the weight isn't displaced (coughs) as much. And that's just to do with machine design. But you can feel that yourself independent of understanding the mechanics of the machine. So what you want is that you feel that you're working hard throughout the repetition and different machines will feel differently in terms of that. Some machines you can move as fast as you want or intend to move as fast as you want and the weight will still be challenging you all the way. But there's other exercises, for example, lateral raises or leg extensions where you can launch the weight from the bottom a lot of the time and then you basically do very little at the top when in fact it's that top position that you should probably be trying to milk a lot more on those exercises you know the lying leg curl is another one you see people like crank their hips up off the pad just to get into the top rather than actually allowing themselves to be challenged in that top position so anywhere where you feel you're launching the weight or it's easier to cheat slow down that concentric a little bit and focus on controlling now there's a, go ahead i was going to say there's two other things that i do it for as well um, and maybe you're going to touch on them but there's two two places that i do it one most people are just pissingly weak in the entire movement so i'm actually just going to get them to spend a little bit more time at different stages of that movement just as a beginner generally you know i'm going to be like right we're actually going to do a little bit of a sh- uh, I could speak a little bit of a longer concentric as well, because I basically want them to be at a position where once we actually really start loading this, you know, you have enough control through that entire range where if I was just to say stop, like you could stop that. Or at least if we were to take a snapshot of that position, you're not out of position, you know, and doing slower concentrics do help with that. The other thing that I use them for is if someone has a relatively poor mind muscle connection or doing an exercise, they're not really like they're generally like oh yeah i can feel my quad contracting or whatever muscle contracting if they're like i'm good with that but then they're doing a certain exercise and they're like i can't really get that connection like we might do some sort of lower or longer concentric for that lift where we actually just focus on the internal cues of like you know squeezing the muscle or even external cues like maybe you're pushing your feet uh, against um like the the leg press or something like you're trying to get some of that friction going like almost doing like a leg extension like different things like that, we might actually use uh, a longer concentric just to build up a bit more of that mind muscle connection. But obviously that's going to only apply to a certain section of people where, you know, pure hypertrophy is the goal. It's like, that's all we're looking to do. We're trying to build muscle. It's not, we don't really care about how much weight we're lifting, et cetera. You know, those are the two other ones that I kind of use on top of like certain machines and certain exercises, just making more sense to have more control to actually control momentum rather than, you know, the actual internal stuff. Yeah. And definitely in, in a lot of rehab contexts as well, I would be in favor of using slower concentrics and slower tempos. Generally, it just allows us to kind of manage the chaos. Like the, the more aggressive you are with moving weights, both in the concentric and eccentric, the more unpredictability there is. The slower you move the weight, the more predictability there is, the easier it is to stop the rep at any particular point. So particularly with things like, uh, tendinopathy or muscle strains and stuff like that. I want the person to be very aware um, at each point in the rep, very attentive to what they're doing and just, you know, being intentional about uh, the next part of the rep. So I don't want them to be shying away from the 
bottom, you know, six inches or the top six inches. So a lot of the time in, in rehab, um, with those types of clients, I'd be using slower concentrics as well. So, um, yeah, there's some of the contexts in which it will be useful. Next question is from Paul. Why do you hate sushi? Have you no elegance? To be honest, I've actually never uh, had sushi. Just the, even the thought of it just disgusts me, to be honest. Not a big fish that fan. Was, that was Shane's exact response as well. He's like, I've actually never had it. Fuck, do you know what it tastes like then? How do you know? How well, I did. Act- I think I might have had it. I think I had one bite once. Um, I don't know. But anyway, just fish in general. I like salmon. You can get tuna. a salmon sushi roll. Tuna's all right, but even like smoked tuna. salmon, even like having smoked salmon, like I think it's rotten. Like just not about that life. Like just warm it up, bro. Um, so yeah, not not really for me to be honest. Uh, just the look of it. Even I'm like, nah, that just does nothing for me. So you- maybe I'll change my mind as I grow up. Yeah, we might actually have to start growing up then, because um, legitimately, sushi is the best food on earth. Don't fucking at me. There's no no question. Nah, I'm I'm too much of a basic bitch, you know. I'm like, give me a burger, give me a steak, give me a pizza, done. That's your low socioeconomic status. Absolutely. And, and your low culture shining true. Absolutely, absolutely, and I stand by it all day, baby. I'm out here eating caviar and fucking lobsters and sushi and everything, and you're over there going like, oh, fish. Ugh. Yeah, give me some steak, man simple finally Fikra asks how to structure training when seeking anaerobic adaptations now when someone asks a question about anaerobic adaptations my assumption is that they're doing some sort of sport that would require them to be working for at very high levels of effort for maybe either repeated sprints or 30 seconds to maybe five minute bouts or something like that so examples that would be like martial arts, repeated sprint sports. So even field sports where you have to be sprinting on repeated basis, um, sprinting itself, and many, many other sports. Also, anaerobic anaerobic fitness uh, or anaerobic modes of exercise or more anaerobic modes of exercise can also contribute to your overall anaerobic fitness. So even if you're a marathon runner, you can still absolutely benefit from doing work within the 30 to 120 second um duration at high efforts so that still contributes to your fitness now how to train obviously it depends what you're looking for you know are you training for a particular sport or is it just generally i want to build my anaerobic fitness just because you know and in that case what you're trying to achieve is working at very very high levels of effort for relatively short periods of time okay it can be up to five minutes um because like anaerobic metabolism does contribute to longer activities as well but generally it's the more lactic type of activities if you will exercises where you feel like your muscles are burning you got a horrible taste in your mouth you feel like you're going to get sick like that's what people associate with anaerobic training so i like for most people to start off with um bouts within the 20 to 60 second range um on a with a mode of activity that allows them to really really push themselves hard without extraneous limits so for example i don't want someone to do sprints if they've never sprinted before and their hamstrings are going to end up being a limiting factor or they get a calf strain or something like that so something like an assault bike a good quality spin bike 
or something along those lines where they can really work very high levels of effort, primarily concentrically. I really like that for um, building up the kind of maximal anaerobic side of things. There's many ways you could program it, um, but they'd be some of my starting points with longer uh, rest to work periods typically. Um, so somewhere between maybe two to five to one um, ratios of, of rest to work. But again, depends on the effort, the level of experience, and of course the goal. Yeah, we also previously did an entire series on cardio. So yeah. go back, listen to that because we actually did cover that question. So do go back and listen to that. Do you have any other questions there that just come to mind? Because I have about two or three here that I wouldn't mind getting to. Yeah, no, fire away. So one of the questions that I got or you know, variation of this is, can you just do the same program forever? And this is obviously very relevant to what we were discussing. So Gary, can I just do the same program forever? Like here, boom, I found this four day per week training program online. Can I just do it forever? Let's assume at least the variable that you're changing is you're getting stronger. You're using heavier weights. What's the story? Can, can I just, can I just do that? I mean, yeah, you can, but it, there's probably barriers you're going to run into one. You won't get your best results, but you don't need your best results. That's another thing. You know, if you're training for health, you want to feel good, look good, and you just like showing up to the gym doing the same session without having to think about it too much, that is absolutely fine and more power to you, honestly. Some, a lot of runners do that, actually. You know, you see people who like, oh, I just go for my, you know, 5K run three times a week. I don't even time it. I just run 5K. That's perfectly fine. You know, if you're training for health, you want to feel good, look good, that's absolutely just perfect. Fire away. However... For most people, especially if you're trying to progress over time in strength and muscle, you will start to, you know, have periods of slowing down in your rate of progress. But also, there's almost always for everyone going to be some point where your elbows are going to start getting at you or your shoulders will be at you or you'll get some sort of um, niggle on that pain injury spectrum that will stop you from being able to push yourself. And for me, at least in my rehab programming, one of the primary variables that I start to change with people is variation in their exercise selection or variation in other training variables. So if you're following the same program all, all the time, my assumption is you're doing the same exercises, same rep ranges, same number of sets, et cetera. Um, whereas to kind of minimize the risk of injury and also to get over those periods of injury, typically variation would be requirement a requirement or at least a very strong recommendation um so i don't think you'd be getting optimal outcomes by sticking in the same program your life all, all all of your life and certainly not your best adaptations because there will come a point where that level of volume is simply not enough for you to continue progressing again you mightn't want to continue progressing and that's fine but if you do you probably will need to make some changes over time 100% I agree with you you know I'm we did an entire podcast as well on this in terms of like periodization etc and also just progressions but it just makes sense that you know like they always say uh, the best program is the program that you're not currently doing you know so a bit of variety does make a lot of sense both in terms of the exercises you're doing both in terms of you know the the different variables so if you're literally just doing oh I do three sets of 10 and try to increase the weight whenever like you, you're going to be able to do that for a while but there's going to come a point where either injury gets you or you know little niggles or you're just playing fucking board and um, or finally you're just not really seeing a huge amount of progress from that you're kind of just 
maintaining what you've built, which again, perfectly fine. Like, you know, I know people that go in and they're just like, yeah, I do my three sets of 10 on the, the bench press and I use a hundred kilos and I'm just, I just, that's all I do. I never try to increase it. I just do my work fine. I know how long my workout takes. I'm done. You know, I'm not looking for crazy progress, but if you're just doing the exact same workout forever and looking to progress, like you're probably not going to get optimal progress. Um, anyway, next question. Um, they're basically on a rock these three into one. Will cardio ruin your gains? Um, is cardio even necessary? And is it possible to train for something like a marathon while also doing resistance training? What are your thoughts, Gary? Seeing as you have extensive running background. Part one was, is cardio going to kill your gains? Um, so yes and no. Yes, in a sense that the more cardio you do, the lower probability you're going to maximize muscle building outcomes. There's kind of two parts of that. One is time. Okay. If you're doing, I don't know, 20 hours of cardio per week or something, like clearly that's going to leave you with very limited time to engage in weight training. And two is, is overall recovery capacity. Okay. So if you're constantly recovering from your cardio training or your running or your cycling or whatever, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to the gym, to give it your all and for your legs in particular to be fresh for that activity. So you're not going to be able to handle as much volume. You're not going to be able to push yourself as hard and that can limit um, your capacity to continue uh, building muscle. There's also going to be some um, like adaptations that are specific to very high volumes of cardio training, like um, shifts in, in muscle fiber type and things like that, that could potentially um, interfere with you being able to maximize your muscle building. So I think at the extreme, yes, it can compromise it. But for most people, like most people aren't even meeting the basic requirements for health, whatever about performance. So I think most people don't have to worry about this at all. Uh, a lot of my clients struggle to kind of get near that threshold of 120 to 150 minutes of cardio per week. So like that, like that's not that much. That's like the health recommendations for cardio. So if my clients who are probably more motivated than the average person, the general population are struggling to get that, then like I'm just generally not worried about someone doing uh, too much cardio. It's probably not much of an issue. Um, and in, in some cases, it might even be beneficial for your gains, in particular for people who have an appetite that's very sensitive to cardio. I find that myself um, where I'll get a disproportionate increase in my appetite when I'm doing more cardio which is good because it allows me to eat the calories I require then to continue gaining weight, gaining muscle. Um, and then there's the other, there's the other side where the, the fitter you are, the more easily you recover from your resistance training. So if you find that being short of breath during your weight training sessions is, is a significant limiting factor, then improving that cardiorespiratory fitness might actually improve your weight training adaptations. It's speculative and it certainly depends on the person, but there is a case to be made there. Secondly, our second part of your question was, is cardio necessary? Um, I would say yes, if you want to be or have a diverse base of fitness and you want to maximize your health, I would say cardio is necessary. Weight training is certainly going to improve your health. It's certainly going to improve your function in terms of having more muscle strength. Um, but what it won't do for you is really maximize that cardiorespiratory fitness that is generally associated with improved all-cause mortality, reduced risk of many, many diseases, as is weight training. 
but the benefits are probably additive because they do different things. And obviously in terms of your function, if you have better cardiorespiratory fitness, you're going to be able to do the things that matter to you for longer. And that's a good thing. So if I want to go for a hike um, and I'm on holidays and it's a 2000 meter mountain and I've never climbed mountains before, but I know I've been doing cardio in the gym all the time. I at least know that I have that engine to be able to go and do that task. And uh, those things matter to people. The same can be said for like playing with your kids, particularly as you get older and you get the natural declines in fitness and muscle mass. If you've trained to build up a better reserve earlier on in life, it's more likely you're going to be able to do those things for longer. So um, is it necessary? Um, I would say yes. You know, I, I don't see why you wouldn't do it. So there you go. 100% agree with you. And finally, what, what was the last one is, can, can you train, train a marathon? marathon while also doing resistance training? You certainly can. Um, I had my client, James McIntyre, this year do 100K while still being jacked and pretty strong, deadlifting over 200 kilos for reps. So, I mean, he's a case example. But with that said, he had done many years of weight training, many years of other types of fitness that had laid his base prior to that. If you were to start from day one as a beginner and say, I'm going to train to try to maximize my muscle mass and I'm going to run a marathon, are you going to get the best outcome in each of those? No, of course you're not, because the marathon is something that less than 1% of people are ever going to do in their lifetime. It's a very extreme event, okay? Even though it's only four hours or whatever, um, that's still pretty extreme, okay? You're running 42K. So the training for that could be up to, you know, 100 kilometers of running per week or some, or even a lot more for some people. So if you're doing all of that activity, you run into the barriers that I mentioned previously, where you got less time for your weight training and less resources to allocate to your weight training. So you can certainly do both and you can certainly make progress with both, but you won't get best results with either um, if you're doing them together. Yeah, I 100% agree. I actually have nothing else really to add to that because Fantastic. it basically just goes on to what we talked about previously in terms of periodization. There's going to be times where you focus more on resistance training. There's going to be times where you focus more on like your marathon training, like, you know, coming up to a marathon, whatever, the 16 to 20 weeks beforehand, you're probably going to be more focused on that. So your resistance training is going to be less, you know, one, two sessions per week, you know, whereas at other times you might be like, right, actually I don't have a marathon planned or, you know, running isn't the main focus. So I'm actually going to use that time to maybe build a bit of muscle, rehab a few injuries, etc. You know, that's basically periodization. That's what we talked about in the last episode. There's going to be periods of time where you're focusing on different things, you know? Um, and then I just have a final question before we wrap this up, Gary, how do you guys integrate bodybuilding it's called um and bjj you know we'll take bodybuilding to mean like resistance training or yeah. you know, building muscle etc you know how do you integrate it gary i presume this is a question aimed at just us in particular not necessarily like how we would potentially do it yeah so i mean like for me at least i've reduced the amount of weight training i do on average um quite a bit i think especially like post pandemic getting back to doing jiu-jitsu more regularly like i really enjoy jiu-jitsu there's far more scope for improvement um and i'm at I've just, just so many skills that i can develop there versus weight training where like i wouldn't call myself an advanced lifter but i've been lifting for quite a while i've far 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 stronger than i would have been when i first started and i feel like you know I, i've done most of the things i would like to do related to weight training like yeah I, i'd like to gain some more muscle over the next few years but it's not a massive concern for me. So as a result, I prioritize jujitsu a lot more. 
Um, this week I'll probably do somewhere between four and six jujitsu sessions and I don't know, three way training sessions, maybe some weeks that's as low as two, sometimes it's high as four. Um, but I basically allow that to be the flexible component while getting in as many jujitsu sessions as I can, because my fitness like cardiorespiratory fitness is at a fairly high level. Um, like for like my level in jujitsu and for someone who does weight training, like that's already at a pretty high level. Um, my strength is at a pretty high level for my weight in jujitsu again. Um, so it's really, again, like we said in the last podcast, it's the skill component that I'm most concerned with. So that's what I'll spend more time on. If you, if this was a, a general question asked in relation to what should someone do to integrate both, if they really want to prioritize bodybuilding, then they might want to do a little bit less jujitsu and do more weight training, which is totally fair. And similarly, if they were analyzing their jujitsu game and they were saying, I'm constantly short of breath and my fitness is letting me down or my strength is letting me down, then you might need to prioritize those more than I would or more than, more than Patty might have to. So you just have to kind of be very clear on your goals. And because I'm able to say jujitsu right now is more of a priority than weight training, I can allocate my training accordingly. And because I can do my needs analysis on my jujitsu and say, skill is most important. I don't I can then allow that to inform my, my programming from there. So, um, yeah, you need to run that needs analysis yourself. So what about you, Patty? I basically doing like four resistance training sessions with some, you know, mild cardio at the end of it, anaerobic style cardio, uh, like a sprints type deal, um, on the air dine. Um, and then I do jujitsu four evenings a week and I basically do it on the same day. So that's Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I do resistance training in the morning, do a day's work, jujitsu in the evening, you know, and that's what kind of bookends my day. Um, and for me, my kind of goals are more like, obviously I still need to get better at jujitsu because I'm shit. Um, but my kind of goals are to get bigger. I actually have been basically just, you know, kind of just fucking around for the last like three years, just maintaining, just eating well, training hard, nothing like specific in mind. But now I'm kind of like, right, I actually want to gain some more muscle. So a little bit more of my focus is on that. So like previously I was doing like, you know, maybe two hours of jujitsu in the evening. Like I do the two classes back to back or whatever, or go to like the 90 minute class. But now I'm kind of focusing more on just, okay, I in and out in an hour, get the hour class in or whatever is equivalent. Like if there's extra roles going, I'm not necessarily jumping in to do them. I'm not staying on to like the very close of class because I want to allocate a little bit more of that recovery time so that I can actually gain some more muscle, you know? So my focus is a little bit more, we'll call it aimed towards bodybuilding. And that's just purely because I want to get a little bit bigger than when I am right where I am right now. Because I'm 30 next year. So I would like to be jacked for that, first of all, which you know, probably won't happen. Um, and then going forward, I'd like to be by you know 35, I'd like to be like, right, I've actually maximized the amount of muscle that I can possibly gain in my lifetime because i don't think i'm necessarily too far off that you know i have been lifting for like fucking 15 years now or whatever so it's like and i have been very consistent at least four times a week for the last 15 years barring you know one or two fucking weeks here and there you know um, and obviously i'm deloading and whatever else but very consistent so i'm like right I want to make sure that I have just fucking ticked the box and been like, right, I've got as much muscle as I possibly humanly could get with the genetics that I've been given, you know? So that's my kind of goal in that time frame. I would also like to get better at jujitsu. So that is obviously also a goal, but like you said, needs analysis, you know, I'm kind of like, they're kind of 50, 50 at the moment. I'm like, I just want to focus on both of them, you know? And um, 
And as a result of that, I'm kind of doing a little bit more volume of training in terms of, you know, number of sets per week than I previously would have. Like I would have previously been at like, you know, okay, like this is 10 sets per week for certain body parts that I was like, I want to kind of make sure that they're still progressing. I'd be like, I'm just going to get the bare minimum of that. Some exercise or some body parts, I'd be like, right, I don't really necessarily need them to be excessively stronger or excessively bigger. So they're down at like six. For me, I know about six sets per week that at least gaintains for me. I know four sets. I'm like, I can maintain strength size etc on four like hard sets per week so six bet six sets is a nice little like oh, it's you know we're basically a maintenance a little bit of gaining going on right but now we're kind of pushing the volume a little bit and you know some uh body parts they're up to like 15 sets per week you know um but yeah it basically just comes back to finding out how much you can do how much you can recover from allocating your time and recovery capacities you know to respect your actual goals and then just taking it from there check yeah sounds good to me easy and um, i just want you know 20 inch calves is that too much to ask for i think it is probably probably is anyway look i have nothing else to say gary so uh, if you want to wrap this up or if you have any anything else to say finally yourself no sir if anyone has goals that they would like to pursue and you'd like high quality guidance towards those goals. We do have coaching spaces available so you can work with one of the triage team, just get in touch with us and we will um, facilitate that. We do also have the coaches corner, which is our member site where you can improve your education, knowledge of health and fitness and its underlying subjects um, with applied information. So do give that a look if you're interested. Um, We have the podcast, obviously, which you know about and you listen to. So if you enjoyed this podcast and you like the Q&A episodes, you can let us know, feedback, share it on your story, leave a rating and review if you can, etc. You can also subscribe to the Triage Method newsletter. It goes out at the start of each month. And if you subscribe, you'll receive that monthly newsletter, which includes exclusive content that isn't released elsewhere, recommendations for different resources, whether it's apps, articles, podcasts, videos, etc. cetera. Um, a snapshot of maybe one of our client testimonies and wrap-ups of the content we've put out for the month. So you can check that out. Other than that, we are active on social media. So do follow Triage Method and follow the rest of us as well, all the Triage coaches, by going to the following section on the Triage page, and you'll see all of our respective pages listed there. And that's it. Fantastic, Harry. Anyway, I hope everyone enjoys the week ahead and uh, you know where we are. You can reach out if you have questions, if you want to get those questions answered. Again, get in touch. Anyway, peace out, guys.